Hey there, this is Dr. Paul Saladino, and today we'll be mapping linoleic acid on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, the practices, the dietary theories, and the healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons highlighting the most important tool in functional medicine and functional Functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Those three factors everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things, all the things that we do that our clients and patients do each and every day, they matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmune issues, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom had been told their conditions were untreatable. He is the host of the popular Fundamental Health podcast and the author of the best-selling book, The Carnivore Code. Dr. Saladino is board certified as a physician nutrition specialist and completed residency at the University of Washington. He lives in Austin, Texas, and can frequently be found exploring wild places when he is not writing, researching, or working with clients. Paul, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Well, first off, I have to confess that I love how geeky in the best ways possible you get with the dietary and physiological fats. There's so much that I could talk to you about regarding dietary fats, but we decided to narrow it to the topic of linoleic acid. So linoleic acid, it's a PUFA. Where do we find it? What is it? Bring us inside. It's generally found in plant foods like seeds and grains. It's in much smaller quantities in animal foods, depending on the type of the animal you're looking at, whether it's a ruminant or a monogastric. Ruminants don't really accumulate polyunsaturated fats in their fatty tissues. Most grass-fed cattle have linoleic acid at levels at about 1.6 to 1.8% of their fat. Whereas when you get into the plant kingdom, you can find much higher rates or levels of linoleic acid in in nuts and seeds and grains, and especially in vegetable oils that have been sort of concentrated sources of that fat. You can get up to things like corn oil or soybean oil, which are 40, 50 plus percent linoleic acid. And as you suggested, is an 18 carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fat, which appears to have very unique and I believe evolutionarily conserved signaling roles in the human body at a lot of different levels. Well, we want to talk about that. I want to talk about the impacts in the body, and you do that so well. But before we go there, can we talk a little bit in the category of quote-unquote good, bad, 
are they all equal? We're talking about corn oil and almonds in the same conversation. Does it matter on the, about the individual and how they're able to metabolize these fats? What should we be thinking about in the realm of clinical care when we're thinking about linoleic acid? I think it comes down to two things. It comes down to absolute levels of linoleic acid in the body and balance between stearic acid and linoleic acid. So stearic acid is the other side of the equation, it appears. It's an 18 carbon saturated fat, and it appears to have a pretty different effect on the body based on the mitochondria, which is where a lot of these chemical, biochemical processes play out. So I think it has to do much like the omega-6, omega-3 balance, which right. is also germane to this conversation, the absolute level of linoleic acid in the body or that we're taking in is critical. And I think, you know, as we know, we can look at red blood cell or serum levels of linoleic acid, and that will give us some indication of body stores of this 18-carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fat. But, you know, obviously consuming oils that are higher in linoleic acid will give us more of a load. Uh, not consuming well-raised animal fat will give us less stearic acid, and therein lies the problem. And so for a lot of people, a lot of people we see are pretty metabolically broken, mm -hmm. and I think they have a real imbalance between linoleic acid, too much of that, and not enough stearic acid in their diet. And so, you know, you could, you could look at the fats they're eating and even the sources of food they're eating and try and reduce the linoleic acid as much as possible and try and increase the stearic acid. And I think that's a pretty darn big lever toward metabolic health for a lot of these people. So it's not one particular oil that's going to cause a problem, but if you look at the overall balance there, you can start to optimize it. That's definitely where I want to head now to what I think of as the soup in the matrix, that center part of the matrix where we look at the body stores, we look at the metabolic problems and problem being the key word. So what are the issues that you're seeing as downstream results of these fatty acid imbalances? There's two big ones. So a lot of people that listen to this podcast will probably be familiar with ox lambs oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism, things like 4-H-N-E and mm -hmm. 9 and 13 HODE, H-O-D-E, if you're not. These are just kind of mouthful acronyms. 4-H-N-E is 4-hydroxynonanol, and the 9 and 13 HODEs have even longer names. But these are products of linoleic acid oxidation. So the first problem is that there's pretty good evidence to suggest in humans that the more linoleic acid we eat, the more our cells become enriched in linoleic acid. We store it. And the more enriched our cells are in linoleic acid, the more of these ox lambs, these oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism we have. And these are correlated with basically everything bad. They're correlated with chronic disease, metabolic dysfunction, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, oxidation of LDL, leading to an increased rate of atherosclerosis. And the reverse is also true. We find in interventional studies that when people limit the amount of linoleic acid in their diet, the amount of oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism go down. Specifically with regard to LDL and atherosclerosis, you can look at cohorts of people at various age ranges, whether it's young people, 30 to 40 years old, or people 40 to 60 years old. And in both of those groups, people with premature or accelerated atherosclerosis have 30 to 100 times the amount of ox lambs, these products of linoleic acid metabolism present in their oxidized LDL. So there's a lot of things that really raise our eyebrows and kind of go, Ooh, maybe this isn't a good thing to be pushing a bunch of this into our bodies. At another level, the part of linoleic acid metabolism that isn't very well known is the way that it appears to affect our mitochondria. 
And this gets pretty geeky and pretty darn deep, but at a basic level, the way that saturated fats and the way that polyunsaturated fats are metabolized at the level of our mitochondria and cytoplasm are different in that they produce different ratios of FADH2 and NADH. Mm -hmm. And that ratio between FADH2 and NADH affects the way the mitochondrial electron transport chain works. The more inputs we have uh, on the FADH2 side, those go into complex two, which is known as succinate dehydrogenase. The more inputs we have there, we tend to do what's called reverse electron transport, and that generates um, reactive oxygen species. First superoxide, which then gets converted to pro hydrogen peroxide. And we think of that as a bad thing right off the bat, but it's actually a very good thing. There is a real physiologic role for these reactive oxygen species at the level of the mitochondria for cells to signal that they are full from an energy metabolite perspective. When our cells become full of energy, whether it's glucose or fatty acids, they signal, hey, I'm full. They kind of push away from the table. And if they don't push away from the table and they keep eating, that's when you run into problems. And so what appears to happen, and this is very fascinating stuff, is that linoleic acid breaks that mechanism. It doesn't allow our cells to push away from the table and they keep getting full of energy substrate, which leads to toxicity and eventually leads to metabolic dysfunction. So in a lot of ways, linoleic acid is both creating these oxidative products, which are problematic, and really throwing a monkey wrench into our underlying cellular sort of metabolic satiety quote mechanisms, the cellular energy maintenance and management mechanisms get all messed up with linoleic acid when we have excess amounts. And if you look at it evolutionarily, it makes sense because we never would have had anywhere near the amount of this omega-6 fatty acid in our diet as we do today. Most indigenous cultures have two to 3% of their calories from linoleic acid at most, but we're getting 10 to 15% and that just breaks our metabolism. Right. And you talk so well about the metabolism at the level of the fat cell, you know, how we want to work with our fat cells and think about what gets in there. And also some of the myths about other metabolism, other even macronutrient metabolism, whether it's the sugars, the carbs, or the fats, and how the linoleic acid can kind of confuse the system. Am I saying that right? Yeah. So the problem I think for a lot of us becomes that we don't have the right verbiage. People will say insulin resistance and get very confused. This term really needs to have much more nuance and clarity than we give it. I think a lot of people will understand that insulin resistance, quote unquote, underlies a lot of metabolic dysfunction, AKA prediabetes, AKA diabetes. And it's really the driver of most chronic disease we see today, whether it's Alzheimer's, atherosclerosis, Pick your poison. Even autoimmune disease is linked to metabolic dysfunction. Right. But all insulin resistance is not the same. And there are physiologic states of insulin resistance that are totally normal. And this is what I'm describing. And so we just really need to discard the term insulin resistance or come up with subcategories that say, this is normal physiologic insulin resistance and this is pathologic insulin resistance, mm. which is why I've started really using the terms metabolic dysfunction to describe pathological insulin resistance. All of us, you, me, everyone, we all become insulin resistant on a daily basis at a variety of cells. 
The other problem, and this is what's hard about a quick podcast, is that <laughs> there's no discussion of which cells we are talking about becoming insulin resistant. Are we talking about adipocytes, liver cells, peripheral muscle cells, brain cells? What are we talking about? Because all the cells in our body are going to respond differently as we are thinking about a broad sort of construction of metabolic dysfunction. And the model of metabolic dysfunction that I think works best is that it starts in the adipocyte. So we have to think about the fat cells first mm -hmm. and whether the fat cells are insulin resistant or insulin sensitive. And this is where the terminology gets very confusing because what do we know about insulin? The role of insulin is to stop free fatty acid release from the adipocytes. It's to stop lipolysis at the level of the adipocytes. It's to stop gluconeogenesis at the level of the liver. It's also to stop sort of caloric ingress into cells, glucose, these kind of things. Actually, it's to promote that, excuse me. So it's doing different things in different places. But what do we know about insulin? If a cell, whether it's an adipocyte or a muscle cell, is sensitive to insulin, it's going to allow substrate to come into the cell. And that means it grows. And if we think about the adipocyte and what that means, the adipocyte grows. So if your adipocytes, if your fat cells are insulin sensitive, they grow, mm -hmm. which is not a good thing. Right. Right. And so this is where we get into a real quagmire when we say insulin resistance as a broad term. And it gets very confusing looking at the research because it's pretty clear that saturated fats create more reactive oxygen species at the level of the electron transport chain, which signal the cells to push away from the table and become, quote, insulin sensitive. This is normal, healthy human physiology. And that's what's supposed to happen. And if we say that's insulin resistance and that's all bad, people get very confused and the research literature looks very confusing. But if you understand that the body is using that reactive oxygen species signaling to do this, then you start to understand the balance of it all. And if you start with the fat cell, the adipocyte, it all starts to make sense. You don't want your fat cells to grow. Most people can get it. You don't want your subcutaneous adipose to grow. You don't want your visceral adipose tissue to grow. When those grow, they get over distended and they don't listen to the action of insulin then when those guys become pathologically sort of deaf to the actions of insulin, they are going to release free fatty acids even when insulin is high. And so that's when things run into problems and that is where you get to metabolic dysfunction. It's a state of adipocyte over distension, both in the visceral adipose and in the subcutaneous, leading to pervasive, persistent free fatty acid leak from those adipocytes. And that is signaling to the rest of the body to become metabolically broken. Does all that make sense? Yeah. it's. I mean, it's complex. And I think people may need to listen to that more than once. And I want to kind of bring this back to the clinical, which you can also do so well. How do we think about this in terms of the different fats, particularly the linolenic acid, and how how we're actually working with dietary change. I mean, some of us are working with people who are seeing people eating more corn oil and eating more standard American diets. Others of us probably like yourself and in our clinic are working with people who are eating already a whole foods diet that may even be limited or um, already taken down to specific food categories. How do we think about our clinical interventions to actually shift that entire cascade or support the appropriate cascade that you just explained? I think it comes down to kind of an evolutionary perspective. 
we should emphasize animal fats. Animal fats are rich in stearic acid. And if people are unsure about the health of saturated fat, I recommend they listen to my podcast, Fundamental Health. That's way too much to unpack right now. But animal fats, for evolutionary sake, have been a signal of abundance. We should emphasize animal-based fats and limit vegetable-based fats. That's the biggest thing, especially the processed vegetable oils. And that is really going to shift that linoleic to steric acid ratio, and I think that lies at the root of metabolic dysfunction. You mentioned this earlier, and I'll just bring it up because it's relevant to the current conversation. Carbohydrate intolerance develops in the setting of metabolic dysfunction, but carbohydrates do not cause metabolic dysfunction de novo. That's been proven over and over and over, and it's important for people to know what the real problem is. What is the root cause of the problem? It's not carbohydrates. If you have a client or a patient who has metabolic dysfunction, prediabetes, et cetera, yes, limitation of carbohydrates, super important in the short term Band-Aid. because they're going to not handle it well, yeah. but it didn't cause the problem. It didn't yeah. cause the problem. It's this imbalance between linoleic acid and stearic acid. And so really just getting the linoleic acid out and it sneaks in a lot of places. You got to know what the fatty acid composition of the animals you're eating is too, because pork and chicken that are fed corn and soy will have linoleic acid contents of between 15 and 20%. And that's going to add up, right? If it's a small amount or it's lean pork or chicken, not as big a deal. But if you're eating pork fat and bacon, things that have been you know, generally regarded as benevolent in ketogenic or paleo communities that's full of linoleic acid, you could still be pushing this equation in the wrong direction. So if people are struggling with fat loss, with metabolic dysfunction that is unresolved, this is the problem. And this is the root. You can limit the carbs, but it doesn't work long term because it's not the root cause. Right. So this is where we see people at that next step doing all the work. It looks like it's the quote unquote perfect diet. And then we have to take that deeper step into what's happening in the body. Is there any specific way you're looking kind of under the hood for those balances? Are you looking just at dietary intake? Are there certain markers, serum markers or metabolic markers that you're using to consider these ratios? Yeah, you can do RBC. I think RBC levels of linoleic acid are valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the thing you want. And in the red blood cell, I think most labs use a cutoff of about 4.6% in the RBC. You want to see it at the low end of normal. In the whole blood, I've seen it multiple times. You want to see it below 18%. I think whole blood levels are going to be a little less accurate in the red blood cell. I want to see it right down there around 46 or even lower percent in the red blood cell membrane. But in the whole blood, it's, I want to see it below 18%. And you can really tell how much linoleic acid people are taking in because as monogastric animals, we store it. And that would be the first thing. At a, at a higher level, you want to make sure that somebody has a low fasting insulin. And I think of a low fasting insulin of less than four mm-hmm. mic- micro IU per ml. If they're above four, mm, not so great. If they're five or six, maybe not. But seven, eight, those are not normal fasting insulin levels. They're just not. And if somebody's wearing a continuous glucose monitor, you can look at the area under the curve and postprandial peaks. That'll give you a lot of sense of insulin sensitivity, which is really what we are talking about. And it's important to note that if someone is on a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet, a lot of those metrics go out the window because you can't do an oral glucose tolerance test without glucose, right. without exogenous glucose. So you can't really look at someone's fasting insulin if they're on a ketogenic diet. It's just not going to tell you how insulin sensitive they are. In fact, they're technically insulin resistant. That's a whole other sort of rabbit hole to go down. But if someone is eating carbohydrates, which I think a lot of people can do, but if somebody's eating carbohydrates and they have a low fasting insulin, they're pretty insulin sensitive. If they have a high fasting insulin, they're insulin resistant. And this is why. 
Um, but again, if they're not eating carbs, a lot of those metrics go out the window and you have to really rely on linoleic acid levels, I think. So final question for you, Paul, if we're thinking about this topic, and I know we will certainly link to your podcast, and you mentioned several things that I'd love to have you come back and talk about anything else you would love clinicians, coaches, practitioners to know about linoleic acid that you found in your clinical work? Like I was saying, it all has to do with the quality of the animals we're eating. Right. And I think this is an argument for eating grass-fed, grass-finished ruminants, bison, cows, lamb, sheep over chicken and pork. And stearic acid is found in suet. It's found in kidney fat. And there are a couple of different ways to get that, but animal fat is higher in stearic acid. And so it kind of just goes back to this idea that humans evolved eating meat. It's a critical part of the human diet. And I think that the plant foods that are high in linoleic acid have just been survival foods. They're not something we should emphasize in our diet. Even though those foods are widely accepted as healthy, a lot of my work is kind of attempting to challenge those norms. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix team features music by Gilbert Nakayama with production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook with mixing and editing by Rowan Bradley. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, who you'd like to hear on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 